Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. Welcome, everybody. Nice to be back with you guys after the uh, most bullshit holiday in the world just happened the day previously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, no shade to anybody out there who celebrates it. I celebrated it. You celebrated it, Abby. I mean, it symbolizes something positive, but yeah, it's a manufactured... I don't even know. It is a very manufactured corporate bullshit holiday, but it's nice to just have an excuse to have a really nice day with your partner. Yep. I just want to say at the the very start of this podcast, this podcast is dedicated to Philip Westron, an electronic musician who died a few days ago on February 9th, 2019. Um, he was only 47 years old. Phil Westron was one of Kevin Key's Kevin Key of Skinny Puppies primary collaborators after Skinny Puppy sort of dissolved the first time after the process they lo- the Skinny Puppy lost one of their later members um Dwayne Goatel to a heroin overdose before that album came out and Phil Western was sort of uh in that same orbit he knew Dwayne Goatel he became one of Kevin Key's collaborators at that point forward and became like his main musical collaborator in the band uh sort of replacing Dwayne Gotel. when I say the band I mean he only worked on I think the process a little bit but he went on with Kevin Key to work in a skinny puppy offshoot side project called Download which sort of started as like an industrial music super group that had Genesis Pureage from Psychic TV in it it had a guy from Soviet France in it but after that first download album, it sort of just turned into Phil Western and Kevin Key. They were the only two guys making the music in the band. And you can hear Phil's like trademark production all over Download's music. And a lot of people, you know, feel that Download is mostly Kevin Key because his name is just so much more famous and well known, you know, that um they kind of overlooked Phil's contributions and even just his contributions to like electronic music in general. I mean, the guy released something like 20 solo albums. He was releasing techno vinyl in the nineties. He's been doing so forever and it's a very sad loss to have someone like this go so quickly and um, without living their full life and living to the full potential of what they could have done. And I just wanted to give my condolences to his friends and family out there and just say, we'll miss you, Phil. You're you're fucking awesome, dude. And that's it. Kevin, Key, and Nivek Ogre are just the sweetest guys in the world. Um, I just couldn't believe how awesome they were in person, how humble they were. You know, they invited me to their show after I interviewed Nivek on Breaking the Set. And it was just, just a really good group of people who really care about their craft and also just what's going on in the world. A lot of people can't say the same and... I, I want to throw some shade here at like all these mu- electronic music magazines and 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 websites that mm-hmm. you know they write about these flash in the pan artists who only have like one EP about out like they write like entire articles about artists like that that just come out of nowhere and yet this guy dies like a thirty year legacy of right. like highly influencing. Potentially like thousands of producers across the world with the sound of download, his his production style. But he wasn't he didn't play the marketing game. So yeah. 
Someone right. like him who doesn't play the marketing game, even though he has this gigantic influence, and there's like people playing at Bergain in Berlin, you know, who get written up in Pitchfork, who probably grew up listening to download records, and they're more famous than he is. So that's just the sort of the way the world works. It's sad, but he was a true artist, and he didn't he he put the marketing thing to the side and just made a shitload of music, and you can listen to it all online. You can go to his Bandcamp page now. Um, Phil Western's Bandcamp page. All the money goes to his family and his daughter. Um, in case you're wondering where that goes, so yeah, consider buying some stuff from there. Um, he was taken just too quickly. It was a huge tragedy. Um, I don't want to speculate on why he was taken. His family believes it was an accidental overdose. I don't know if that's been confirmed. There has been phenytyl outbreaks in Vancouver, where he's from, that have been being sold as heroin. Total speculation. I don't know what happened to him, but his family believes it to be an accidental overdose. Because mm-hmm, so. he wasn't sick. Yeah. You know, it's just, it. what's crazy is when people who pass now, it seems like there's not enough due diligence to really um, talk about who they were and what they contributed. And I don't know if it's just, like you said, the marketing stuff. I mean, even when Gary Shandling passed away, I felt like the media did not treat that um, yeah. with the gravity that it deserved and like the impact that Gary had on comedy. Yeah. Um, you know, the well, proto burned, Seinfeld. He burned of, a lot of just, bridges towards the end of his life because he? of his, he basically sued one of the most powerful Hollywood agents that it was his agent at the time. And it really created a lot of bad blood. Like in, like he had his phone tapped and shit by like a, like a, like, wow. an, like a squirrely private investigator who was hired by this agent he went through a lot of shit towards the end of his life, mm-hmm. and that's sort of why he pulled away from Hollywood. And that's a whole other sad story. But, but yeah, I'm going to miss you, Phil. I mean, you were the, one of the only people on that I was Facebook friends with that would actually like care about what Abby and I were doing. So it was, it was great to be able to even just talk to someone in the scene who was one, honestly one of my idols who like was checking out what we were doing and found it valuable. That's so so that's really special to me. Rest in peace, Phil. Yeah. Um, on a happier note, I went on my hero, my personal hero, Tim Heidegger <laughs> from Tim and Eric. Uh, Tom goes to the mayor on cinema, Decker. I mean, and, he, and not only that, I mean, he's produced so much that we love. Uh, Nathan For You, Eric Andre's show, that's all part of his production company, Review, yeah, absolutely. which is one of my favorite review i'm obsessed with that show I, i'm so sad that it's not on anymore but yeah i mean just the, the list goes on of highly influential shows on adult swim and, and outside of adult swim that are just epic and he's kind of the brains behind all of this he sparked and changed culture he changed an entire generation with tim and eric awesome show just like the editing style the humor yeah just monumental impact on our reality today so it was quite fucking amazing to go on office hours which i've talked about on this podcast before about how i love it how it's like very irreverent hilarious and it's an amazing show and and um i don't even know how it happened i mean doug pound who's the editor for all of their stuff uh, he knows duncan trussell and knows some of my other friends and so we just linked up and i went on his podcast and then tim heard it which was so cool tim actually heard that podcast and was interested enough to invite me on 
And I thought it was really great because I listen to Office Hours every week or whenever it's out, and Tim does not really embrace politics. He, he kind of deflects it because the whole point of the show is people call in, um, and then he just kind of responds. It's like a way for his fans to just call in and talk to him. And a lot of people bring up politics every time. Um, and he just kind of deflects it, and he's like, oh, I'm just a jack-off. I'm not, you know, not going to like pontificate about my political beliefs. So for many reasons, I found it really cool to just give me that platform. I was just really stoked that I went on and I thought it was really, really fun. And I'm still kind of riding high on the wave um, because, again, these are like comedy idols of mine. It's, it's such weird synchronicity because he would be like one of the last per- people I would expect to like he is so apolitical seeming. It's interesting that of all the people Tim Heidecker could have picked to come onto his podcast to be like an expert and ask political questions to pick you, (laughs) which is fucking crazy. I know. And, and I hope you go on there again. I mean, that would be amazing if you became like their resident political expert. Because most podcasts that have one have a, a very milquetoast one. But yeah, I thought it was actually pretty funny. The, if you're going to listen to the, the, the office hours podcast, and I thought that if you just want to like go to the funniest part, I thought it was when he did the prognostication with like the music in the background. <laughs> that was nuts. Yeah, that was really good. <laughs> he's just so genius that uh, he's just so extemporaneous. Yeah, you know? and that's like when the I heard sign him doing that, improv. I was like, "Damn, Tim is really on a weird level." Like he's on a really <laughs> next level like improvisational <laughs> ability. I mean, it's and he, but then he also like makes fun of all that shit. Like he makes fun right. of like improv comedy, he makes fun of stand up comedy. He's like the most irreverent like um, right like hater, but in and that's sort of his shtick in a way. I mean, like when he used to go on comedy Bang Bang, he would be in character the entire time, and actually like every episode, you, you could tell Scott Ackerman, the host, was like actually genuinely annoyed. Like he would get, he would like kind of just get under his craw that much. So I really appreciate that. I mean, him and Neil Hamburger are basically like the new Andy Kaufman. And I, and I know that's like a generic thing to say, but it, like, I even think they're funnier, way funnier than Andy Kaufman was. When I saw um, Greg Turkington and Tim do the on cinema live show, it was just really heavy concept. They made the entire audience watch a terrible movie. (laughs) <laughs> that was like an hour and a half long and then they and then when they came back to talk about the movie like like Tim like the the this I guess the bit was that Tim was mad at Greg for picking such a bad movie and like making the audience watch it <laughs> but they stayed in character so well that I was just like I was actually at a certain point in the show I started just like paying really close attention to their faces to see if they would show any tells of like breaking character and man, they are fucking good, especially in front of an audience. Very impressive. I saw him a couple of weeks ago at this fire benefit thing, and he came out to perform songs. And the two songs that he sang, and this is like, mind you, this is a, you know, it's a very apolitical event. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one was talking about Trump, really. It was just like raising money for people who lost their homes in the fire. <laughs> but he, both of the songs, one of them was about Trump dying in a plane crash. <laughs> And the other one was making fun of the raking the leaves and like people around me were visibly upset and like talking to each other like angrily. Fun fact of the day, a guy named David Forden, uh, who was a CIA case officer, and according to Washington Post, he was a CIA case officer who handled pivotal Cold War operations, died at 88 years old um, on February 13th, a few days ago. 
And David Forden happens to be the father of Dan Forden, Dan Toasty Forden from Mortal Kombat 2, the little head that would pop out when you would uppercut someone. They'd go, Toasty! Toasty! So apparently his father, who just passed away, was this really pivotal Cold War guy who helped, I guess, extract people out of Poland. Um, very, just an interesting, odd co- connection. I had no idea. Do you think that the son had any CIA connection as well? Highly doubtful. Um, yeah, I don't know what the what his CIA role would have been uh, other Mortal than just Kombat's making people just a jam total out psyop. while they're yeah. playing Mortal Kombat. <laughs> right, like, just like jamming out to some great music. Right now, I'm now I'm uh, yeah. <laughs> now I'm looking at Mortal Kombat differently. <laughs> Another fun fact of the day is that the army is trying to get super fucking hit, bro. Did you see that fucking sick ass trap video they made? Yeah. Super dope, dude. It's only bad as I can No stopping, I can do. Misperception the army life. I'm gonna show you how to win, though. It had like that auto tune. It sounded like a Wiz Khalifa like track. It was like the. It had like a auto tune, like um, like monotone. Like, yeah, it was fucking insane. And then, like. It almost looked like one of those videos that we would do at Great America when we were kids with the green screen. Yeah. And one of the really best weird. parts in the video is just the really cringe part was when the white guy, he like drops in his verse, like in the middle. And it's like a very fast, like rapid fire white boy day rap. <laughs> and he's like moving his hands around all fast and shit. And I just like, holy fuck, this is so cringeworthy. <laughs> well, did it work? You think it's working? I mean, it's oh, yeah. Just, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, no, it's great. Oh, my God. I would want to join the army. And it's funny. They're even in this song. They're like. Free housing, like free, like they're talking about like all the free shit, like free college, like they get in the army. It benefits you in these amazing ways. Loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, earn more. Don't be a house to college, paying a mortgage, honor, integrity, personal courage, eating up beer like a bowl full of porridge. And what's also funny is like there's one scene where they're like running away and there's just like a big explosion behind them or like a big smoke ball of dust. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you probably just blew up another refugee camp. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wonder if uh, that wasn't even an official thing that was like they're just made by like a group of guys, right? Oh, really? I thought it was an official thing. Well, I mean, it looked expensive. Like it looked kind of expensive. So it makes me wonder if like the army paid for part of it or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it was it was meant to seem like it wasn't official. Like it was just right. these soldiers. Man, they're just they made this awesome video. Check it out. That's how much fun the army is that you have time to make yeah, crap yeah, yeah. music videos and film with like army equipment. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's the shtick now is like it doesn't look like an official ad, but it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have Gavin McGinnis dressed like the plantation owner, of course. He's suing the Southern Poverty Law Center for mm-hmm. calling him a hate, you know, part of a hate group. As we know, he founded the Proud Boys. So he does this stunt in front of the SPLC that seemed sad until you realize that 100,000 people were watching live. And these are not people watching, hate watching him. These are people who agree with him. So I saw a lot of people, a lot of people's hot takes on just like how pathetic he is. Look at what he's uh, subjected to. I'm looking at it kind of in a different way, where he has a hundred thousand people. Just imagine those people like in front of him. Yeah, and you also so, have to know. imagine he's not just one of these 
artificially signal boosted Robert Mercer puppet type people like Milo or Ben Shapiro. He actually has a lot of his own money too. So I mean, right, God knows how much he got. Yeah, from who knows? The Vice. I mean, how much he got from Something. Vice, which is now mm-hmm. apparently a billion dollar company, even though it's a complete fucking farce and it's like falling apart. He he was the, one of the founders of Vice. I mean, I'm not saying it's like being a founder of Facebook or something that big, but it kind of is pretty big deal. He is very rich. So right. he's able to sort of combine together this sort of artificially signal-boosted right-wing puppetry thing with his own funds. So he is someone who people need to be taking very seriously. Right. And it's super weird because I used to listen to comedy podcasts where the comedian's on the podcast were dumb enough to be baited by sort of right-wing ideology or they would bring Gavin on um, at a time because they thought he was edgy. This is like a few years ago. Yeah. And he was sort of all over these comedy podcasts for a, a little while. And uh, he, I remember he used to say things like that he was, he, he was one of the best stand-up comedians in Canada, that he could improv an entire hour-long stand-up comedy set and kill like the audience would all be laughing hysterically. Mm-hmm, right. So one of the craziest things I saw recently was he's been going on Alex Jones now recently. And Alex Jones has this like weird crush on him. It's very, it's odd when you watch their dynamic together. So on this recent sketch that he did on the Infowars show, he played the character of the liberal brother of Gavin McGinnis um, getting mad at Alex Jones and slapping him in the face. Like, they right. did this, like, stage... Did you see this? Yeah, I did. They did this, like, slap fight where Alex Jones must have told them to, like, actually hit him in the face. So they, like, fake wrestle on the Infowars set for, like, way too long. It goes on way too long. And it's also just insane how bad conservatives are at do- doing uh, any form of comedy. Right, right. I mean, we talk about, you know, we talk a lot about how Colbert and all these late-night TV shows by these, like, generic liberal comedians are terrible and unfunny now and they are but it's it's like they're still able to be funnier even that very bottom of the barrel level than like a conservative comedian it is insane how bad conservatives are at doing comedy they have never figured it out it's it's kind of interesting actually what's odd is i just saw larry the cable guy walking past me in a mall yesterday and no shit yeah um, and I wanted to scream out, get it done, because I'm sure he never gets that. But that kind of genre of comedy is like a very bottom of the barrel. You're appealing to people who are just kind of, for lack of a better word, dumb. But there is no intelligent conservative comedy um, because I, it just doesn't exist as a genre. It and attempts I, it, to be. If it does, like, I haven't heard it. There are libertarians who attempt to do weave in conservative values into their comedy and attempt to make it sound intellectual. But it ends up just sounding sort of like a, a red pilled. It's just too. It's too obvious. <laughs> One of the best things I saw recently that Dave Rubin did was he celebrated uh, the. I think it was the anniversary of either Reagan's death or birth that happened recently. Oh, great! And That's good. guess how he celebrated it? This classical liberal Dave Rubin celebrated Reagan by bringing on Michael Reagan, the non biological child. He's the adopted child of Ronald Reagan. He brought him on his show. The Weird. only thing I remember from this particular Reagan child, which is has actually been inexplicably stripped and erased from the internet, I tried for almost a whole day to find this clip, is that Michael Reagan said live on air on his talk show in the 
early 2000s that we should insert explosives into Palestinian children's rectums to get rid of the problem in Palestine. Yeah, and it's just another example. You were saying he claims he is a stand-up comedian. I mean, there is video of him doing stand-up comedy that's atrocious. You can find it online. There's only a few clips. You'd think for someone who's been doing stand-up comedy for, he claims, 20 years, would have dozens of clips online. Um, oddly, there's only a w- one or two clips, and they're both fucking terrible. Well, you know how dumb he is because he always, every time there's like a glitch on Twitter or on social media, he automatically thinks that there's some sort of vast left-wing conspiracy against him specifically, and he's like the first to say it. Like, um, coincidence? Like, ooh, losing more Twitter followers than I'm gaining today, and he's like constantly tracking every single social media platform, every single number, every single subscriber. Yeah. And it's really, really, really sad, actually, because a lot of times it's just a glitch, dude. And like you just refresh the page and then it's fixed. Well, he's but he just like leaps out there and he's just like, oh, my God, we're going to see more and more of this. Like as the election comes near, it's like, dude, what are you talking about? And apparently it worked because he's getting Jack on his show soon. So wow. I guess he can confront him about. Yeah, he's going to confront him about, you know, being being persecuted wow. on social media wow, as a that's right winger. Really smart uh, tactic to grow this audience based on a grift and then act like and make a big stink about the fact that Twitter is censoring conservatives so then you can martyr yourself and use that in and of itself to like make yourself appear victimized and censored to signal boost yourself. That's a, exactly. I mean, it's a smart tactic and it also explains why terrible conservative grifters already who are just totally phony, but also explains why they need the idea of soft internet censorship to be a partisan issue because it exactly. helps their grift. Right. And as we know, when we've been talking about for almost two years is it's not partisan that the, there is a soft censorship agenda happening on the internet to eliminate actual threatening content to the status quo. And Dave Rubin is not threatening to the status quo. And neither are a lot of these conservatives, like Ben Shapiro. I mean, he is a straight fucking establishment peddling Zionist. Um, He's a neoconservative. And so for people to say that these people are part of the intellectual dark web is is hilarious. It's completely bizarre. Trump declared a national emergency just like we were all worried that he would do because that means that he can just siphon more money to impose this this fake border wall idea. So steal money from other programs. I'm not sure where it's going to come from, but I mean, this is, this is what he had shut down the government for a month before to try to do. Everyone was saying, okay, is he really going to go as far as declaring a national emergency over this? And guess what? He just did. And the speech that he gave is surreal. Just like every speech is surreal. He says, we are going to get sued. And then we are going to the Supreme court and then we won. And then we will be sued again. And he said, and then the Ninth Circuit Court and possibly get a bad ruling. Have you seen this? It's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen him do. And I didn't he know. Just, I did not see that. He has this that. really high inflection for every other word. He's like a sing song through this national emergency thing. Um, just to give people an understanding more about what a national emergency is, um, it's usually declared after an event, like an actual war or, you know, mm-hmm. George W. Bush declared a national emergency after 9-11. His dad did as well. 
um, to try to, I guess, facilitate the first Gulf War. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, not that these were ever validated. You know, it's always been bullshit to declare a national emergency unless there actually is one. Like Flint would have been a perfect reason to declare a national emergency. We have lead-laden water that's poisoning tens of thousands of kids. We need to declare a national emergency. Um, but not this. This is a totally manufactured crisis. There is no crisis at the border. The only crisis is what the U.S. policy is causing, which is funneling the migrants into death-defying routes and not giving people asylum and putting kids in cages. And, like, now there's, I don't know, like a thousand kids that I, I don't even know if they're going to get reunited with their family. They're just, like, shipping them all around the country in different locations. That's the crisis. That's why it's just so insane um, that he's declaring a national emergency, pulling this executive privilege in such a grotesque way, again, just abusing the powers and abusing his authority. Um, it's just so beyond the pale. Because, yeah, of course you can technically do this. Like, I saw a lot of Republicans defending this, and they're like, well, he's not doing anything that's not constitutional. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure it's fucking within the legal rights. Just like everything else he did is, quote-unquote, within the legal rights to do so. But isn't it scary? Isn't it scary that he's just done all these broad, sweeping, authoritarian measures in his first two years that have no, like, I mean, no pretense, really, in, in, um, in this country? So it's been very disturbing, and we should be very disturbed by this. Of course, yeah. No, I mean, people, you know, people predicted this, and it was one of the things that the media, you know, typically under Trump, you cannot trust when the media makes a hyperbolic claim. When the media says that, you know, Putin and, and Trump had these secret meetings and the reason the transcripts were not released or thrown out is because they were negotiating some business deal. I mean, like they've, they've been hyping up so many th hyperbolic things. So when they said that he was going to declare a national emergency, I didn't believe it until it happened. Mm -hmm. And now that it's happened, it's like, oh, OK, so they got something right. You know, out of all the times they get shit wrong about him, they predicted this, that he was going to do this. And. Yeah, it's really creepy. And it's also really interesting, too, how certain conservative leaders, figures are not buying it. For example, Ann Coulter, this is from Newsweek, says Donald Trump is trying to, quote, scam the stupidest people in his base with a national emergency. And she says that the goal of the national emergency is for Trump to scam the stupidest people in his base for two more years. And she just goes on and on. Wow. She says... Will someone please primary this guy? Oh. She she and she also says that uh, that lunatic Trump should be challenged. Um, what she says what, that Donald when? Trump is afraid of wall fight, and that Trump is the biggest wimp ever. Wait, since when did she become so anti-Trump? When he started, uh, I guess, like even before this wall fight, she she knew or she predicted he was just gonna like cave on the wall fight. And she's just been bad, like badgering him ever since. Well, what's crazy about the national emergency is that it shows that all of the Democrats and all the liberal media that were saying, oh, Trump got defeated, you know, during the how he had to restart the government. And they were like, oh, Trump's such an idiot. He lost this battle. He lost this one. Mm -hmm. Pelosi won. Look at the Democrats came out on top. Yeah, you don't want to goat this guy because this is the shit that happens. And he will do whatever it takes to, like, come out on top. And it's all about his ego. And so that's why I think this is happening, to just try to reinforce the fact that he can win because he's the president. He can pull all these executive measures to, like, get the money. 
I just knew that it was going to turn into this, specifically about the wall thing, because of how all the Democrats were acting, and they were acting like it was some big victory, that they didn't like capitulate more or compromise more over the wall. Yeah, it's a, the whole thing is strange. I mean, I think on some level it is definitely like a distraction because uh, there, he's not going to really build a full wall. It's not right. possible. And there already is mostly a wall already there. That's why, I mean, again, it's just so strange. The way that how this debate is being framed in the public, it is definitely not how it appears on the surface. Right. So listen to our previous couple podcasts where we where you actually go pretty deeply into that. Should we move on to foreign policy stuff? And I mean, the State of the Union happened. That was pretty disturbing as well. Well, yeah, let's, maybe we could go into that by just mentioning how Trump is still backpedaling and changing his promise to end the wars. You know, even leading up to the State of the Union, he said that uh, on 60 Minutes, he was asked about the U.S. troops withdrawal from Syria. And he's like, we're not leaving. We have a base in Iraq. The troops are going to our base in Iraq, and ultimately some will be coming home. We have to protect Israel, he said. So he literally nakedly said this thing that paleoconservative, more libertarian, like neocon critics have believed all along, that all this is really ultimately for Israel, that the neocons want us to do these things for Israel, like not for our own hegemonic uh, goals which I've never really been on the same page with, but it is odd for him to just come out and say something that naked. It is like the rebranding of these imperial ambitions, like just things being nakedly put on the table. We're going to work with Sitgo to steal all Venezuelan oil. Like we're going to, we have to stay in Iraq because we need to protect Israel. It's like these are things that presidents wouldn't have said openly before. So that's a, that's an interesting shift. And he continued in his... um you know, State of the Union to act like all the troops are coming home, but yet he's not talking about any, any bombing campaigns or drone strikes. And why don't you go into what just happened recently at this refugee camp? Yeah, um, it was a pretty devastating thing to wake up to because, as you just mentioned, um, people have convinced themselves that Trump has, quote-unquote, ended the war in Syria and that when troops are gone that he himself added, that means the war's over. Um, as we know, drone strikes have increased uh, nearly 400%. Civilian casualties have skyrocketed. Um, so we know that that's going on. And, and as he's announcing this troop withdrawal right before Christmas, there was incessant bombings in Syria and Iraq. So we were looking at the Pentagon numbers um, and we were floored by how many strikes were going on at the same time this kind of rhetoric was being saturated mm -hmm. and believed and just lapped up. So... A couple days ago, uh, the U.S. coalition bombed a refugee camp, bombed a refugee camp in eastern Syria, and this was just one day after bombing another village. Now, U.S. Um, forces can kill nearly 100 civilians in a two-day period, and somehow that's like just completely off the radar of people. Um, 100 civilians died from U.S. airstrikes in Syria. In the last couple of days. I mean, technically. And for some it, reason, people don't care. Yeah. Technically, it did make it into like mainstream news headlines, but it's not something you, you saw get very much play. You know, it's like a back page story. 
Right. And the fact that it was a refugee camp, and I'm going to read from Sana News, because I didn't even see people pick up on the refugee camp aspect of it. I saw the initial reports coming out from Sana News Agency, which is a, a Syrian news. It says the coalition's airstrikes targeted a camp that holds hundreds of civilians that fled the shelling by the coalition before and the terrorism of ISIS. So this was a refugee camp of people who were already fleeing the shelling. And, um, and it says that that number's likely to rise. This, this happened right off the bat. This is the number that was initially put out, and I'm sure that there's tons more casualties that we don't know mm -hmm. about yet. And um, the, the, the massacre of this refugee camp came just hours after another shelling, another massacre happened in a, in a village called Al Bagos, where 24 civilians were killed, mostly women and children. Now, here's another really interesting part of this is that at the end of December... Of um, this year? And, and, or last year? 2018? Yeah, at the end of December 2018, the U.S. stopped citing the number of strikes. Um, they, they eliminated the transparency of revealing how many strikes they do. And so Air Wars, which was tracking and mapping every coalition airstrike and artillery airstrikes in Iraq and Syria from, you know, up until 2018... They have made a, a huge cry saying, this is incomprehensible. How could you guys do this? We deserve transparency. We need transparency to do our work. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea that this was happening. So think about that too. So like not only were the strikes not waning, we don't even know what's going on there anymore. Yeah. And which, we only know when massacres happen. Yeah. We, I mean, it's, it's to assume that we knew when all you know, when every single civilian would right. be killed before, or even "quote unquote" combatant um, would be naive. Like I'm sure they were. You, you know, there's plenty of ways to hide casualties before, but now it's actually been explicitly stated. It's official policy now that they are not going to release that information anymore. So that is a change from the Obama era, um, and yeah, I mean it's just more signs that Trump is making the U.S. government and the military more hawkish, more insane, less accountable. Um, and that's just, you know, it's right in front of our faces. Right. Not only lifting the restrictions on the Pentagon, which I'm sure weren't many to begin with, but just ripping those right off, giving complete authority to do whatever the hell they want, um, taking the gloves off. What do you think is going to happen here? So and I and and I even saw I didn't actually hear him say this but I saw people saying when he declared the national emergency he also said that ISIS is going to be destroyed in the next like 48 hours and you'll see what that means. So I don't know what he's talking about but we can uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that means a lot more massacres of civilians. Yeah, or maybe another Moab. Unbelievable. And let's talk about the state of the union address, Robbie. I don't remember it being this creepy. Do you remember it being like this in previous presidencies? I don't know. I think it's just because it's Donald Trump and everyone just lines up behind him during this. Yeah, it's creepier, ceremony. definitely, because I mean, he. This is the same president that all these Democrats claimed was a secret agent for Putin, and even some said was the new Hitler. And so it, and, and it that like creates a whole Ill. new level of creepiness to it when you see how cordial and nice they're all being, given that context. Exactly. I mean, it was exactly. bad enough to see Bush get standing ovations during his State of the Unions, 
this is different because it's like you know that they act like they hate him or they act like well i guess now impeachment's off the table pelosi said um <laughs> so it is, i think it's fundamentally more creepy because of that and trump is just creepier acting i mean his weird inhalations that he does those mouth noises the fact that he cannot read a teleprompter like he bled into the next sentence several times without any punctuation like he just read three sentences in a row sometimes like they were the same sentence and didn't enunciate the right words it was he was on total autopilot during parts of that that speech it was act that was creepy for me to watch too yeah it was very surreal in the midst of talking about how trump needs to get out and you know the entire establishment lined up against him in terms of like the democrats it was very surreal to see the media treating this like an award show first of all what are they wearing ooh who's going to react to him like everyone's just hyping it up before the event which is yeah. super creepy in itself and then when the event actually happened Everyone gives a, gives a standing ovation to Donald Trump and Melania. Why did that happen? This man has, has destroyed, has eviscerated the bowels of any sort of semblance of democracy that, that remained in this country. The first couple things that he said were brags about like horrible shit. Um, kicking people off healthcare, how less people are on food stamps now. Um, all of that stuff is awful, you know, and he's just like bragging about these horrible things. And then he said he... he he stripped more government regulations than any other cabinet um, through their entire terms in his first two years alone. That's not something to brag about. And people are just applauding him mindlessly. And people kept chanting USA, mm -hmm. USA, USA. Uh, and I just don't understand, like, even the progressive caucus, why are you there? Why don't you fucking stand up, heckle this asshole? He's a monster. He's a monster. Mm -hmm. Um, he's killing kids every day, and instead they're just there. They're just there all buying into this because really what the State of the Union is is like a ceremony to protect the system. It's, it's, it's all the people who are in the establishment to line up behind the leader and display this kind of faux unity um, of the capitalist class, like the unity behind U.S. empire. And it also is just weird because he gives such insane speeches every day. He's c constantly doing campaign rallies that it was just weird to give this sort of gravity to just another speech. Yeah. Um, but I know the whole point of it is to like check in and, and make sure the empire is doing well. And it was but, a really tame speech for, like for his normal speeches. Mm -hmm. It was it was actually seemed really toned down. Like he was trying to win some points like across the aisle. So I found that interesting i it was seemed definitely toned down from his previous one where he spent a lot of time talking about illegal immigrants who had murdered people and had all those victims stand up yeah i mean and it was actually really interesting in this one he had that nonviolent drug offender who was like he released from prison who pardoned stand up a black woman mm -hmm. and she like started crying and jared kushner and novanka were like looking over at her like tearing up trump is is smart enough to know that he he's trying to win over like black votes with that stuff, you know, inviting Kanye to the white house and stuff. So I find that interesting that he's, he's doing that kind of stuff still. Cause that's not like a right wing issue at all. You know, that's not no. something Republicans want to, they're not, it's not like something they talk about. In fact, they're mostly against it. So things like that were just interesting to me. I mean, and then he mentioned he's going to end all the wars too. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh, my God, look at the generals. Like, they they look pissed. 
in the audience. But then like five minutes later, he talks about how we're going to overthrow Maduro and the Iranian regime. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the foreign policy aspect. First, he says, opines about the anti-Semitic terrorist attack at the Tree of Life synagogue, which I found audacious considering that guy cited the migrant caravan Mm -hmm. as justification for committing an anti-Semitic attack. So that was bizarre. But then, yeah, he, he goes into this spiel about foreign policy saying we've, com- we've defeated evil empires in the past with fascist leaders. He actually like cited fascism, mm-hmm. um, saying that it was important to defeat and like how evil empires have been crushed. It's like, okay, um, well, first of all, we're the evil empire and you're the fascist. So I don't know what, what that was. And then he just talks about how, you know, he's proud to support Israel. He's proud of what he did there, moving the embassy and then the, the overthrow of Maduro, how we'll never be a socialist country, like a, a clear dig to just Ocasio-Cortez and maybe Bernie, even though they're not actual socialists, they're democratic socialists, uh-huh. which, it, which just means social democracy. Like Kyle Kalinske breaks this down. He's like, why have these people been calling themselves socialists when they actually are not. They don't believe in a post-capitalist society. They believe in social democracy. So that's very strange. Because they haven't clarified these stances, they've just been able to be swept up into like this hysteria yeah. and just play right into the right wing. And we, we already know that the right wing media for years and years and years, when I remember it really ramped up when Obama was running for president, Fox News, Sean Hannity, all these right wing talk radio hosts were saying that Obama is a Marxist He's a communist. Mm -hmm. He's going to bring communism to the country. These are Marx, like his government was Marxist policies. They're communist. A lot of really dumb base level right wingers will still say that stuff. Like Obama's a commie. Bernie's a commie. But the less dumb ones that didn't work on them or that just didn't affect them that much. Now what the right wing has done is made people believe that democratic socialism is communism. Right. And they use the word socialist, they've weaponized it to make it seem like all these people are actually communists. Every time that they go on mainstream media, it's like they have to first explain what their philosophy even is. Mm -hmm. And it's just like really weird. And did you see Elizabeth Warren stood up and gave a standing ovation during that part? Are you kidding me? No. During which part? The Israel part? No, the social, our country is never going to be a socialist country. Oh, no. Yeah. So I don't know what people see in her still. There are people who I've encountered who are like, yeah, she's still a really viable candidate. Um, I, I don't understand it. I've never liked her. That's so bizarre. I, I'm so disappointed that she did that. Um, and yeah, just Trump talking about ending the wars and how socialism has has made Venezuela fail. I mean, it's just grotesque. It's just absolutely grotesque. But let's move on to actual foreign policy here because there's a lot more going on and it all kind of fits into the Elon Omar controversy that seemed to last for an entire week. Um, Elon Omar is the Somali refugee congresswoman. She is uh, the third Muslim in Congress. The first was Keith Ellison and then Rashida, who's actually Palestinian, and Omar. And um, Rashida and Omar believe in BDS Um, And so, of course, they have been the targets of just viscerally crazy, racist, Islamophobic tropes and smear pieces since they got elected. Um, I thought it was odd that they didn't have the same attention drawn on them like AOC. 
um, in, in a positive way. You know, it seemed like AOC was like this star, but you have these two other women who are very radical, who are kind of being sidestepped. Um, and then it just seems like the only thing that they're paid attention to are like controversies, which I found unfortunate. So it all started when Elon Omar was like one of the most outspoken opponents of the Venezuela coup. So I noticed her right away that she was going harder than anyone, um, maybe aside from Tulsi Gabbard. But she was going out there every day just saying, you know, how disgraceful this was, how we need to end the sanctions. I mean, she was really going hard and using language that really no one else was. And so I was just really, really excited about it. And, um, and then she noticed me because I, I promoted her or said, thank you so much. This is what real leadership looks like. And so she watched the Trump expanding the empire video and she promoted it, promoted it, meaning retweeting me. But that was really all she needed to do, Robbie, to stir up a whole other controversy um, because people who are just, you know, have, have daggers at me already who are kind of in these neoconservative circles in D.C., that was all they needed to really go off on, on another series of hit pieces, dredging up all of my 9-11 shit. It was really fascinating to kind of go through the ringer by proxy to discredit her for promoting me, but even though my shit's airtight, um, the Trump expanding the empire, it's so airtight, they couldn't actually say anything about that. So, of course, they had to discredit me by dredging up stuff from 10 years ago, 12 years ago, but then using that to be like, look at who she retweeted. Even though every day Trump is like retweeting and promoting people who are like literally like Nazis and, and all kinds of crazy people who are promoting like literal fake news. Yeah, I mean, when I saw her re retweeting you, I mean, I got kind of nervous. I, I was like, damn, like the fact that someone in this high of a position of government is retweeting you, that's putting her in the crosshairs. That is not allowed. I mean, just even something doing something that small. And it was not allowed. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that's why she's being smeared. Obviously, it's because of the whole, her whole package, like what she's been doing recently. You can't promote something by someone like Abby Martin or even like if she posted like a real news segment or something like from, you know, Chris Hedges show or something talking about Trump. You can't do that. That's like against the rules. So I was really surprised by that. And I knew that her time was, I don't want to say limited because I have hope that she'll stay in there, but like limited in terms of like getting completely bombarded and put through the smear machine, like the full force of the DC smear machine, think tank circuit, the neocons coming after her. I mean, it's interesting because the generic right wing and like neoliberals and neocons are all going after her at once right now. Right. Together. Right. And it's, it, they can't even resist. Like it's, it's already looks bad enough that they're all piling onto a Muslim black woman, but it's crazy. Like even Eli Lake, was mocking her accent and tweets and stuff. And I was like, damn, you motherfuckers can't resist. And you're the ones trying to say that she's anti-Semitic, but you can't even resist mocking her accent. It's, it's insane. It's like, that's how much they, their anger is seething when they see someone attack a neocon like Elliot Abrams, which is what she did, like her most recent thing, which was insane that someone even got to do that. Um, right. In, in an actual live session. So, um, yeah, I mean, oh, and did you see that article where some conservative writer wrote that she had the personality of the Somali pirate in Captain Jack Phillips or whatever that fucking movie was? There's been 
quite a bit of, of really, really crazy hit pieces that are just blatantly, blatantly like racist and Islamophobic, and that's completely acceptable, Robbie. Do you want to go into the, her, like what she did with the yeah. Benjamins thing first? Or the- yeah, so let's, okay, okay. So, so here's what happened. Glenn Greenwald had talked about the smear campaigns against Omar and Talaib, which was Rashida, Rashida Talaib, for their criticisms of Israel. He just said, you know, why is it that all of these people are attacking them just for the BDS thing, something to that nature. So Elon Omar quoted Glenn and said, it's all about the Benjamins, baby. It's a famous Puff Daddy song, and you've seen it referenced hundreds, if not thousands of times. It's a cultural meme. So then this woman who works for Forward Magazine said, I would love to know who Elon Omar is talking about when she says that um, Congress is paid money to support Israel. Mm -hmm. And then Elon Omar quoted her and said, APAC, (laughs) who do you think? (laughs) Um, And that's when all hell broke loose. So then you had everyone from Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor saying... Matt Dust. This is insensitive. Yeah. To even AOC herself saying, um, you know, not getting her back initially and just saying, like, I, I am proud of her to understand the pain and suffering that, like, these tropes have incited. Yeah. What other people said was so beyond the pale and atrocious, Robbie. I don't know if you want to get into some of this. Yeah, but for sure. I mean, Liz Cheney, like, really? You have the audacity to weigh in when your dad killed a million Iraqis? Chelsea Clinton. Chelsea Clinton weighing in. This is the most hilarious part of all, though, dude. So Chelsea Clinton tried to pile on to Omar in the same way the rest of the media was. And she actually, like, started, like, engaging with all these people who were rebutting her on Twitter. And she wouldn't let go of her argument that it, that she was being anti-Semitic. And she doubled down. This is the best part I thought. Well, she doubled down by looking up the rest of the Puff Daddy lyrics from the same song and said, well, I find this, it's really problematic that she quoted this song then, even if she didn't uh, mean it, because there's another lyric in the st- song where Puff Daddy says, st- stacking chips like Hebrews which was fucking ridiculous that she would have even looked up the rest of the song lyrics. Like the reality is a lot of hip hop from that era does have lyrics about Jews in it. Like Ice Cube has said plenty of anti-Semitic things. NWA did back in their lyrics. It was kind of a common trope. We have to remember the era. Louis Farrakhan was actually a lot more influential. The Million Man March was a big deal back then. So it's hilarious that she would try to pull that out and act like, no, actually... It is an anti-Semitic code because of this other lyric. But then uh, Chelsea Clinton was found tweeting the same exact thing about it's all about the Benjamins, baby. Right, right. Chelsea Clinton had already tweeted in the past mentioning the same cultural meme. So she got fucking just obliterated, as always. I mean, she is a robot. I mean, she's just a weird non-person robot. Yeah, she organized pro-war rallies. yeah. And imagine being the I mean, daughter too of such a is. weird, fucked up family. It's basically like if Frank Underwood and Claire Underwood had a child. Right. right I mean, that's right. how weird ass growing up in that. Fa- and in a way, I feel kind of sorry for her because her parents obviously fucked her up and like I probably don't. didn't nurture her, didn't raise her, didn't even give her love really as a child. I mean, she just seems broken to me. And it was weird too that she said co signed as an American. It was kind of like an underhanded insult to someone who's a refugee 
Yeah, 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 yeah. And then so Eli Valley, this this really awesome Twitter guy, um, he chimed in and he was like, hey, can I chime in as a Jew? He's like, thanks. He's like, the American right is working furiously to detract us from its literal alliance with Nazis. And then, um, and then he follows up saying, FYI, he's like criticizing an organization that gave a standing ovation to the hero of American Nazism and the fervent hope he'd rubber stamp policies of apartheid is not anti-Semitic. And as we know, I mean, God, conflating Jews with the state of Israel, conflating Jews with APAC is anti-Semitic. That's actually anti-Semitic. So then Chelsea Clinton responded to him where she said the stacking chips like Hebrews. And then he says, wow, deep cut. He was like, that lyric was removed from every version of the song. Are you a diehard Diddy fan? No, I mean, it was just it was just such an artificial piling on um, that it was like, damn, she unleashed the gates of hell. And I don't even think it was from that tweet directly. It was just like they decided someone decided to launch a smear campaign on her one like the moment she tweeted that because of the things she was already tweeting before. They were waiting for the right moment. And I think they fired on. I think they um, attacked and pounced too early. Like they they might have wait if they waited longer, they might have been able to find an example that they could have distorted into something better. But they like were desperate to really ruin her, and they jumped pounce too early. It- and just to give give people a sense of how gross this got, I'm sure people saw a, a sampling of it. But here's like an example: someone that Fox News calls a left wing historian. So take that with a grain of salt. Um, some Politico guy named Joshua Zeitz tweeted. Um, I'm one of those American Jews who opposes the occupation of the West Bank, laments Israel's anti-democratic drift, and doesn't regard the country as especially central to my Jewish identity. And I knew exactly what she meant. She might as well have called us hook-nosed. Really? Wow. Really? That's so... I mean, honestly, that to me just tells me that that guy guy is a serious racist. That he is so threatened by a black Muslim woman even broaching the subject of APAC's influence in this country and to think that that's an attack on his, like like the way that he looks as a Jew right. is insane, an insane <laughs> level of racism. It really is. I mean, it's just like, like that's how scary this black woman is to you. Holy shit, I mean, dude. It, wasn't it Relax. just so upsetting? Right. Wasn't it upsetting to see what people were doing to her? And it's like, none of this is considered islamophobic and none of this is considered racist it's all under the guise of like fighting anti-semitism it was just the most hysterical nonsense i've ever seen in my life and sadly she even had to like semi-retract i mean she and then she came back with a vengeance like two three days later which was like kind of really unexpected like you would think after someone went through that heavy of a smear attack they would kind of you know chill for a little bit and then wait for the storm to roll over them but she didn't which was pretty impressive i thought yeah talk about what she did well um elliot abrams was trotted out in front of the uh foreign affairs committee um which is a committee that they've been trying to get her kicked off of the whole time ever since she became part of it it was just like too much obviously for like a black hijab wearing muslim woman to be on that committee clearly for the all the people who are already on it, and the and the neocon foreign policy and war makers in D.C., I mean, this was months ago when she became part of that committee. It was like this is a huge threat. This is dangerous. Why are we putting her on this committee? 
So it, I mean, it was obvious from the beginning that they were very threatened by her. Um, but Elliot Abrams, PNAC neocon, Iran-Contra criminal, um, one of the biggest hawks in the Reagan administration, was trotted out in front of this Foreign Affairs Committee to explain his um, attempts to run a coup in Venezuela. And right out of the gates, she basically accuses him of running genocidal death squads. And it, it was a great exchange. He was extremely offended by it. He tried to interrupt her. He felt like he had the right to interrupt her because like he wanted to an answer, even though she's like, no, I didn't ask you a question. I'm just like framing, I'm just like telling you right. you are a genocidal <laughs> maniac. Yeah. And after that, the gates of hell opened up again on her from the same people. But this time, it wasn't directly like, oh, she's anti-Semitic because she's attacking um, this Jewish man, Elliot Abrams. It became neocon is code for Jew. What? Yeah. So because she's attacking a neocon, again, she's doing something anti-Semitic. Wait, and talk about what that one guy said that you that you commented on. Like, really? We're going to go there? Like, commenting on how, oh, let me just let me just guess why she's obsessed with someone named Elliot Abrams. Oh, yeah, asterisk, he looked up asterisk. something about his name in Hebrew and <laughs> translated it and made it sound like this was a, just a Jewish attack. And then additionally, what I found interesting when this happened, it created a lot of shifts really quickly. You know how there are all these right-wing grifters like Ben Shapiro, Tucker Carlson, all these phony motherfuckers, or especially Tucker Carlson tries to present himself as anti-intervention, anti-neocon, pro-free speech. That's the big one. A lot of these right-wingers, they really pride themselves on people not losing their platforms or jobs because it's free speech. Well, guess what all they did when she went after Elliot Abrams and even the tweet? They called her an anti-Semite a Jew hater, and they wanted her to get fired. Laura Ingram did. Ben Shapiro did. All these phony grifters did. So it punctures immediately this facade that they actually are concerned about free speech. It's a partisan issue for them. It always will be. It's a partisan tool. Um, but Tucker Carlson had a funny way to sort of spin it. He did try to do a more clever thing. But what was fascinating is he, two years ago, had Ryan Paul on his show and Rand Paul went on like a two-minute rant about how Elliot Abrams is an Iraq war architect, a neocon. Why is Rex Tillerson going to bring in Elliot Abrams into State Department? Because two years ago, he was being floated. And Tucker Carlson is like, it's absolutely baffling. I don't understand why Trump would bring this guy in. This is baffling. Two years later, fast forward to now, Tucker Carlson actually did a five-minute long segment a couple of nights ago, not only defending... Elliot Abrams and brushing under the rug saying, what's this Iran Contra thing? That happened 30 years ago. Yeah, Like, totally. what's the big deal? So Tucker knew this guy was a neocon two years ago on a show, had a conversation with Rand Paul about it. And now that he's in the administration, Tucker doesn't mention it at all on his program, not a peep, until this woman goes after him. So he spends five minutes defending Elliot Abrams, how he's a good guy. And also his argument was, we can't go after this woman for anything because she's a black Muslim. So they'll just accuse us of being racist. Like, so we can't like, it's, it's like the left is super unfair because now we can't like criticize her because she's like a black Muslim woman. And this is how dishonest the left is. 
Unbelievable. And it's like, wait a second. I thought you were the free speech master. They just tried to get her kicked off this committee for saying something about all about the Benjamins, quoting a rap song, and you're not even going to mention that and like defend her free speech. I thought you under like I thought Tucker was aware of this right shit, but it really does sort of reveal, and not that they weren't revealed as this before, but it forces a lot of these grifter free speech conservatives who claim they're anti neocon and anti the DC elites. It forces them into a corner to defend uh, not only the Israeli lobby, but also Elliot Abrams. And that's a beautiful thing, that it sort of finally forces all these people into a corner where they now have to defend Elliot Abrams, a PNAC neocon. Like they, re- like they kind of were wishy-washy and were like, oh man, Bolton, I don't know about this Bolton guy. Like, why is Bolton in here? You know, he's he might be he's undermining Trump's uh, trying to make America great again policies. But now that Elliot Abrams is in and now that she's attacked him, I feel like they by default have to defend him and put themselves in that position. And that's very interesting because that even forces places like Infowars to run pieces now defending Elliot Abrams. Imagine that the PNAC New Pearl Harbor people that Infowars used to say were behind 9-11, they are now running pieces saying that the guys they claim were behind 9-11 are actually pretty cool guys now. That's an amazing transition, if you think about it. <laughs> I just can't believe that you're not allowed to talk about APAC spending money. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's of course you're not. That's pretty weird. And I saw so many people were just like, um, oldest anti-Semitic trope in the book. Jewish money. It's like th- there is a huge lobbying organization on the Hill that you have Al Jazeera yeah. doing a three-part documentary where eight, the, the former APAC director is bragging about it on camera. They, what they're trying to make it seem like she said is that she said something like, why do all these people with these certain last names all, all work for the media or something? It's like they're making it seem like she's talking about the Jews or the Jewish elites. She's talking about Israel specifically. Because I think it's just the BDS stuff is such a threat to them. As we know, one of the first bipartisan efforts um, during the shutdown in the new year was passing an anti-BDS bill. Complete bipartisan effort. Yeah. So they, Which Rand they Paul, are extremely One of the only good things scared. he's done recently was he voted against that. That's like one of the only good votes he's made Great recently. Great job, Rand. It really does go to show the power of just speaking, of just challenging these powerful figures and these ideas in public. Like, it really shows how weak the whole facade actually is, like how much it's barely standing up. So I I find that interesting. That's how threatening these things are. Can you imagine if other giant lobbying groups like the UAE, Saudi, who pays for all of these think tanks, right, or the NRA, can you imagine if it was off limits to talk about them because then you were deemed racist? Yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, Maybe imagine. the UAE will eventually deploy like Hasbara style talking points to make it seem like you're Islamophobic for criticizing their lobbying influence or something. Very strange how this has happened. So it's perfectly okay to talk about the NRA. It's perfectly okay to talk about the enormous sphere of influence that Gulf states have in shaping legislation, mm-hmm. paying for think tanks. But the second you discuss the fact that APAC pays Congress, because that's exactly what she did, then you're an anti-Semite. And you will be dragged through the mud by everyone. I mean, I 
was astonished. Matt Duss, Bernie's foreign policy advisor, he's actually really smart on neocons, and he's done a lot of research and, and reporting about them in the past. I mean, he, he actually went to the very first foreign policy initiative talk and did a whole report about it. So he covered a lot of early ground in that. So yeah, it's very shocking for me to see him falling for their bullshit. And these yeah, are the same really, people. I mean, really I was just mentioning in a couple of podcasts ago how Bill Crystal in the 90s used to talk about the elites that control the media in Hollywood. And he was right. arguing with someone about how that's not anti-Semitic, even though he's people have tried to say that's an anti-Semitic trope. So it's interesting how things have changed now. When you come out and say something like that, you get completely obliterated as being an anti-Semite. Can you imagine the same reaction to anything remotely actually racist or Islamophobic? Absolutely um, not. Can you imagine? Absolutely not. No. Wow. Um, yeah, the Elliot Abrams confrontation was thrilling to watch. And not only did she just destroy him, where he's like slamming the mic and looks just like he looks... Like he belongs in a dungeon. He actually looks like a monster. He does. Um, he looks like an evil little devil. Unbelievable. It was great to see him just under pressure like that and getting confronted about his war crimes. And this is like not, we're not mincing words. He is a war criminal who, who facilitated genocide and, you know, hiding the weapons and aid shipments. And now we're doing the same thing with Venezuela. I mean, it's just comically blatant. Yeah. And like almost just cartoonish at this point. But... One other thing that I wanted to give kudos to was Code Pink. Uh, Code Pink interrupted him immediately. My friend was one of the people who interrupted him. They're like, don't listen to war criminals, right when he started talking. And then he's just sitting there all pissed. Um, again, I don't know how they get into these sessions with signs. It's like they're obviously going to interrupt them. But uh, they did, and it was great and beautiful. And, and really, these people should be shamed, heckled everywhere they go. And they should never be left alone. And that's the least that we can do. So kudos to Code Pink. Kudos to all the people who are um, putting their lives on the line, bodies on the line to get arrested, to just interfere and interrupt this ridiculous um, charade that's going on. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that it's, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I see people like Elliot Abrams, um, especially when they had government roles, as being the equivalent of mass murders. Of serial Absolutely. killers, in right. fact. Right. Um, I think Elliot Abrams is worse than Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy combined. I mean, you can 100%. combine most, like, most of these people, these neocons who actually were responsible for the deaths of people, um, directly put, putting out this government policy, they are worse than most serial killers. Like, I mean, so I, I don't understand when I see things like people acting like, well, he was my colleague at this think tank and he's such a nice guy. Why was she so rude to him? He would have had like a conversation with her. It makes me like, like people were like offended who were acting like he was just such a nice uh, colleague of theirs at these various like policymaking think tanks or when they worked with him in government. And it's like, well, Jeffrey Dahmer was probably really nice too. Like he, he I mean, he was actually a charming, nice guy. He would go to gay clubs and pick up men and bring them home and murder him. He had he had a certain charisma. So did Ted Bundy. So it's like you don't, it doesn't even make sense to me why that's a deflection. A lot of murderers and sociopaths are nice people. In fact, some of the more successful ones are are very able to be very nice and navigate the world and and get people like 
pull the wool over people's eyes and get them to think that they're nice people to let their guard down. That's sort of an inherent quality in a lot of sociopath or psychopathic killers. So I just find that odd that that's even a thing. And one of these women who were saying that um, she worked with him and he was such a nice guy and, and she's like hurt to see people piling him on like this. She tried to say that neocon was code for Jew too. She's like, oh, and by the way, the word neocon is basically a code for being Jewish. Um, FYI, Elliot means this in Hebrew and Abrams means this. So just, you know, sit on that for a sec. I mean, the whole idea of lobbying um, and, and people who think it's even just about getting money it's so much more than just like getting money. Like I, Marco Rubio said that famous quote to the Parkland kids. He was like, the NRA buys into my agenda. I don't get paid by the NRA to support the NRA. And um, so that that's true. You know, that that's true with a lot of media people. That's true with a lot of politicians. It's like he's a gun-toting maniac. And so, of course, the NRA is going to like give, you know, support him. But a lot of lobbying is kind of the threat what will happen if you don't support this? Not even like, will we pay you if you support it? It's like, how will we depict you and what pressure will exist on your public persona if you don't support APAC? APAC will just paint you as an anti-Semite, as we've seen pretty plainly. And that's a stigma that a lot of people just don't want. Um, And so I think that even if you're not getting directly paid by APAC, then I think it's just kind of like, do you really want to put yourself out there and criticize them? Do you want to put yourself out there and criticize Israel and then have this happen to you? Like if you don't support the NRA, like they will destroy your election by funding your opponent, by digging up, you know, funding opposition research to make you look crazy, um, putting that shit out there. And it's like, it doesn't even have to be about guns. It's just about like, how will you be punished and how will the perception of you be shaped by the power of these lobbying groups. Of course. Um, I mean, a lobbying group is, yeah. Like, I mean, it's not just the influence peddling, it's the chilling effect as well. I mean, when you pay enough people and you, and you spread that money around enough, it inherently creates a chilling effect. I mean, this is why Google has been lobbying so many people, you know, from both parties because they just don't want the the idea of criticizing Google to become that too too serious of like an issue in government. They want to You're tamp totally that right. That's down. why they th- they throw a bunch of money at all of these like transparency slash. Oh yeah, civil EFF rights organizations. has Google money. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a nuts in and of itself. I remember even arguing with uh, Julian Assange's proxy Susie Dawson, who's like an EFF promoter, about this, and and she was like. Yeah, they have criticized Google, and she was only able to find, like, two articles that very mildly criticized them on their website from, like, the last four years. So that's what money does. Even, like, the Red Bull Music Academy, which pays all these electronic musicians and tastemakers and DJs and photographers and all these people, they pay so many people now, even in San Francisco and Oakland. You even bring up Red Bull Music Academy and, like, why is an energy drink company inserting itself into the underground electronic music scene and people you can feel the chilling effect even in private like people have this weird defense of it even like in private conversations you can't even give people to be honest about it so it really does show the power of like that's not a lobbying effort but it's similar or you spread yeah, enough money that, around yep. then yeah nobody's going to criticize you it's almost like the the um the lag and critique on vice and 
The Intercept. Because there was a hot moment where a lot of people were kind of in the periphery, like, will I get a job? Will I get oh my God, yeah. linked up with this organization? Every and leftist so there journalist was, was probably huge, hoping to get a job with The Intercept. Huge absence of reporting and coverage on these outlets. Um, so kudos to you, Robbie, for being one of the first people to actually be critiquing Vice. And wow, were you proven to be right? Yeah, the vindication is strange because it's like, I mean, I, I hate to sound like an asshole or a cynic. Wow, shocking that a company founded by Shane Smith and Gavin <laughs> McGinnis would treat their employees like garbage. And it was like a phony paper tiger that never really had this much revenue. And also just like would be promoting U.S. Empire. Yeah, like, that's, uh, wow, how shocking. Like I mean, it's just totally like the whole, I mean, honestly, if Empire I'm really being honest syndrome. with Gavin McGinnis, his whole trajectory is very suspicious. We were going to get into the Venezuela coup update, and I was just going to just update us on Israel stuff. Um, in the, in the vein of talking about Elon Omar wanting to boycott Israel, um, Ireland, you know, as, as our government, who's subsidizing Israel's apartheid on a daily basis with $10 million of our tax dollars, yet we can't afford Medicare for all, at the same time that this kind of ridiculous argument is going on in this country where we're demonizing a, a Muslim refugee for simply talking about a lobbying force, Ireland just passed BDS. That's how far along Ireland is. Wow. Um, unbelievable. So that, that's a really huge monumental victory. And of course, Israel responded calling them anti-Semitic for doing so. Um, great March of Return update. Two more teens uh, were shot and killed by Israeli snipers last Friday. Hassan Shalabi, 14 years old, was killed by live ammunition to the chest. And Hamza Shdwiwi... 18 years old, was also killed, um, shot in the neck by Israeli forces. Another 17 Palestinians were shot with live ammunition, including two journalists, marked press, and four medics. Obviously, clearly medics, because they all have markings to distinguish them as medics or journalists. Not as if that matters, because you will get killed. You will get targeted and you will get killed as a medic, as a journalist, as a child, as an amputee. So more people are dying. Um, not only were these people killed, but ambulances were attacked with skunk spray during this demonstration. So they oh, were shooting, yeah, they were shooting smoke bombs and spraying all the ambulances with skunk spray, which is a chemically enhanced sewage water shit spray. We're talking about Gaza, the Great March of Return. Now I'm going to switch over to the West Bank, which is under Israeli military occupation, martial law. But it just, this story really stuck with me because it was just so fucking devastating. I go on hikes all the time. I go on picnics all the time. And it's just something that's really tranquil. It's a beautiful thing to go out and meditate and just get, get into nature. And anyone who's been to Palestine knows how beautiful these rolling hills, these um, rock walls and just really gorgeous landscapes. Well, kids on a picnic that just went to go try to eat a little picnic the other day were ambushed by soldiers and they were fucking shot at. They all ran for their lives and they watched one of their friends bleed out and die um, just because soldiers wanted to just attack them. Kids get attacked all the time. Um, they, they pose zero threat to these soldiers whatsoever. They were just literally walking. Um, and I'm going to read from Haaretz. Written by Gideon Levy, he's, he's one of the good Israeli journalists who writes for Haaretz, and he's always talking about what happens to Palestinians. He says, quote, The soldiers hid behind the tallest oak tree in the valley. 
That's where six teenagers were headed as they descended from their town, northeast of Ramallah, into the deep, steep valley to hang out together on that Friday afternoon. On the way, they brought potato chips, sunflower seeds, and chocolates, and they planned to boil water for tea over a campfire. Suddenly, without warning, a gunshot rang out. The teens had no idea where it came from. Ayman collapsed, rolled over, and landed on his back. A bullet had sliced through his chest, below his neck, and exited from his hip. When Muhammad tried to approach to pull him out of the line of fire, another shot rang out. Muhammad was hit in the arm and ran for his life. Ayman laid on the ground, dying. The firing grew more intense. The shooters emerged from the ambush site behind the oak tree. Bursts of automatic gunfire aimed at the teens who were fleeing for their lives echoed through the valley. And later in the article, it says that um, they, they brought the body to his family later um, in, the, in the night. That was nice of the soldiers to do that. They collected the body that they just killed um, for no fucking reason, just to terrorize Palestinians and just to remind them that they have supreme authority over them and can kill them at any time. So that happened. That's so sad. It was just one of the saddest stories I've ever read. Um, and, and right after I read this, I read this other story of a gang of settlers. Remember, Palestinians can't have weapons. They can't even have things construed as weapons, meaning a nail file. And uh, Israeli settlers go and move on top of their villages, and there's just armed gangs where they actually hold like holsters of semi-automatic weapons, and they're just marching around these villages, while a group of like 10 Israeli settlers went and, and confronted a village and just started shooting into the village. And this one guy um, was trying, he, he escaped, but then he was trying to rescue people who were like wounded and like bleeding on the ground, and then he got killed. And according to all the witnesses who were in the Palestinian village, they said the soldiers came and just were standing ambiently around. And that's what happens a lot. Like they'll stand and either get the back of the settlers or they just won't do anything or they will actually participate. And, and, you know, the settlers will say like, oh, he threw a rock at me and then they'll just like kill you. So settler attacks have increased 50% in just the last year. So if you think that Trump is not having an effect on the Palestine situation, you're dead ass wrong. Netanyahu's new re-election billboards feature him shaking hands with Trump. And it says Netanyahu, colon, in another league. That's how much like the Likudniks and the right wing, which is a lot of Israel, that's how much they love Trump. It should be obvious to everybody that Trump is accelerating things and making things worse. And it's also interesting, too, that it it's like Trump, Netanyahu's affinity for Trump and his disgusting, like, bromance with Trump is actually turning off people who would normally be very supportive of Israel in the United States, like big celebrities and stuff. You know, they're disgusted by it, too, but they won't take their criticism far enough to, like, criticize the Great March of Return. That's too risky because it's Hamas. It's Hamas's fault. But, it, no, it's weird. It's like it's actually making... It's dividing people even more in this country with and how they support Israel or how they perceive their support for Israel. So I don't know what Netanyahu why why that like giant building sized printout of him <laughs> standing next to Trump was even done. I don't I don't even know if people in Israel would appreciate that necessarily. But you've said that the polling 
at least like two or two and a half years ago on Trump was like very appro- like his approval. No, was very they high love in it. Israel. No, they love they love Trump. There. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Before Trump even won, just the rhetoric alone that Trump was talking about migrants and immigrants and Muslims in general, they love that. Mm-hmm. And Dan did some man in the streets that like ninety nine percent of the people he talked to were super into Trump. And, and then he was like, "But what about Bernie Sanders?" He's like, "Bernie Sanders is a Jew," and they didn't care. Yeah, of course. And Bernie so, Sanders, just for the record, has been pretty weak on the Great March of Return, and 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 said some like he blamed Hamas at some point, like during all, the, all those unarmed protesters getting murdered. Well, let's wrap it up just by talking about where the coup is at now in Venezuela. The coup is still being attempted, but it is hilarious how the coup is failing. Um, because Waido, Juan Waido, just made this announcement where he was like, I'm going to give Maduro 10 days to let the aid in. And it's like, wow, this is this has shifted quite dramatically. Huh. First, you declared yourself president. <laughs> you were calling yeah. for a military invasion. And then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, like, we don't really know where to go with this. And it's like the people left the streets, you know, because they just went back to work. Um, my friend is there right now, Anya, and she just said it's just like normal. I mean, everyone's just going to work and, you know, it's not the whole narrative that you hear about in the media where everyone's just out in the streets, like demanding the ouster of Maduro Mm -hmm. on a daily basis. It's actually, to the contrary, the opposition protests have heavily waned, but you still have pretty substantial pro-government marches happening outside of Caracas, showing their support um, against the coup. Throughout this this aid hoax, this humanitarian aid hoax, this bridge photo was circulated around by Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, and a lot of the media, too, um, just saying, look at how disgusting this dictator is refusing to let his starving people get aid. The bridge hasn't been in service for, like, five years. The bridge was never completed. Um, and so it was like a complete hoax. It was like a staged event basically, that they were pretending like this aid was held up on this bridge that wasn't even a functioning bridge. And also, if you look at what the Red Cross is saying, the Red Cross has refused to work with this stunt. They said, we do not feel like this is legitimate aid, um, and we will give aid in good faith. And they actually are already working on the ground with people in Caracas and and other cities to do that, to disseminate and distribute aid. But they're just saying, we're not going to work with the U.S. government because this is not in good faith. Um, they said this is like a, a, a thinly veiled mechanism to spur some sort of like political points. But the media just does it anyway. The media doesn't even question this shit. It's like even though the Red Cross is saying this, they still didn't even include that in the reports. <laughs> it's really dangerous that the media is is promoting all the stuff that his administration is trying to do. And it really teaches his administration and gives them the go ahead, um, at least the confidence to know that if they try to do this with Iran the media will be completely behind them. And it also helps take the heat away from them for like other scandals that they're, that his administration is already yeah. being you know, put through the ringer for. So it's really dangerous. Not It's not shocking to see the media mm-hmm. promoting it. And it's also interesting to see the neocons, the anti-Trump, never-Trumper neocons, being really mum and kind of like holding their clo- cards close to the chest about this. Like Bill Crystal kind of, hasn't been that critical of, you know, he's talking about Trump and how he's, his rhetoric is like really dangerous still, but he's not, he's not even mentioned anything about Venezuela, like in the past month. So the neocons want, obviously want this. 
this is something that they probably wanted to do. It's not, maybe not, it's, it's something they didn't expect to happen this soon. Yeah, I mean, it's really dangerous to see that when these imperial machinations not come out of nowhere, when they're trying to actually start a new war, then everybody's like in full support of it. There's not even any criticism on the mainstream media about what Trump is doing in Venezuela. But Robbie Pelosi did a, a weird clap. Yeah. Clapped it. I mean, she really threw a bunch of shade by doing that really sarcastic clap. I mean, that was very impressive. I was really proud of her because, man, she really threw shade at Trump. That was like one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And it was super cool to have her just sign on um, to that resolution where John Bolton even uh, thanked her. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Pelosi. Thank you so much. Whatever they're doing behind the scenes, we don't know exactly what the CIA is doing. We don't know what the State Department is doing. Um, National Endowment for Democracy, all these places are probably trying to do shit right now, and they have been doing shit the whole time. But it seems like the way the Trump administration is trying to do this publicly is like, we declared the, this this opposition leader president. Now we're declaring that Citgo owns the oil. Now we're like denationalizing the oil. Like they're acting like all these things on paper are going to officialize what they're trying to do. Yeah, oh, yep. What it seems like in reality what they're trying to do, Abby, and you could tell me if I'm right on this, is it seems like what they're trying to do is egg on this small minority opposition to the point where they do something violent against Maduro's forces or Maduro's government and causes like a, not a civil war, but they want to provoke Maduro's government into doing something like killing someone from the opposition. And then at that point, They'll be like, now we got to send an American troop because the opposition needs our help. Yeah. And at this point, you have John Bolton pleading. This is how far the coup has failed. Um, John Bolton is now taking to pleading to military personnel that are close to Maduro to defect. Yeah. He's actually saying the sanctions won't apply to you. He's offering to bribe them. Mm -hmm. So this guy, Juan Guaido, in this alleged dictatorship, Surrounded by opposition media, surrounded by news cameras, and is holding these giant press conferences every day. So what's weird is like he should be arrested and tried for treason because he tried to overthrow yeah. a legitimate government. And can you imagine but if like, that happens? Crazy. Like let's right. say if, if Maduro does something like that and decides to arrest him, this is right. like a shell game. They exactly they know, they're setting it up, and they're right. hoping to goad Maduro into doing something that can look to the rest of the world like he's done something really undemocratic. And they're waiting for that moment to really go hard. And I interviewed Alfred de Zayas, that UN investigator who was the first one to go to the country in 21 years as the special rapporteur. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he decries the notion that there's a humanitarian crisis. He talks all about how the sanctions actually have caused the deaths and really fascinating interview that we're putting out soon. But he talks about the potential um, of, you know, the U.S. just finally making someone from Maduro's military cave and like a, potentially assassinate him from the inside. And that could be a really scary thing to happen. I mean, who knows what the U.S. and all of these non-governmental organizations are doing to coerce, bribe, and game from the inside. And also, we have to look at the reality that Cuba, we haven't forgotten about Cuba, like, did you really think that Ben Rhodes and Obama's plan to, like, try to normalize relations between the U.S. and Cuba was going to, like, actually seriously work? No. The F U.S. foreign policy establishment and the U.S. empire has never forgiven and forgotten Cuba. They're, they, they're still in the crosshairs. So 
What do you think will happen if we manage to overthrow the government of Venezuela and install? I mean, it sounds like a total ridiculous outcome. It's not going to happen. But what even if we just overthrew the government or destabilize the country to the point where their economy completely collapsed, then Cuba is going to be suffering as well. Absolutely. So this could be a long-term strategy to sort of start another domino effect or Amer- just more American imperialist creep destabilization like south of the equator. It's yeah, like of a, course, the troika of tyranny, how he said Trump doesn't like wars abroad, but he does care about this hemisphere, Robbie. He really cares about this hemisphere. Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating how the neocon plan can sort of be switched to different stages in their plan at any time when it, the opportunity arises. Iran is definitely like still a top priority, but this seems somehow this is like moved forward more now. And that's just fascinating to me. What is the end goal here? It seems like it is potentially Cuba. Just to remind people how partial the corporate media is, even in a, even an organization like AP, Associated Press, that paints itself as a completely neutral arbitrator of news, mm-hmm. they changed their Twitter header to Juan Guaido. Wow. Right after the coup. Wow, and so we don't have state media here, but somehow all the media outlets, including Vice and AP, are just giving Juan Guaido this giant platform. Vice uh, did a little cute, fun Q&A with Juan Guaido. That's super fun. What a crazy dictatorship. Yeah, it's it's fascinating that that we talk all about RT and all the state media and how damaging it is, but yet our media is not allegedly controlled by the state, but yet it's pushing the exact same lockstep message. And Stunning. validating a illegal coup. It's very surreal. It is very surreal. And it was also surreal in a media sphere that is completely dominated by right-wing Venezuelan exiles and pro-coup Venezuelans. All of our social media, of course, there's several reasons for that. A, just information warfare. We don't uh-huh. know how many of these people are sock puppets. And B, it's the wealthy, more well-off Venezuelans who are living outside of Venezuela. So they have more access to Twitter yeah. and they're living on Twitter. But So that's why it was really concerning to see that Twitter announced it had removed 2,000 quote-unquote pro-Maduro accounts based in Venezuela because it said that they, quote, influence a domestic audience. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're using the same, you know, after the Russiagate shit and Russian disinformation, they're just going to use that every time now. They also removed Iranian ones, too. Yeah. What is Twitter's business removing them? Like, even if they had proof that they were somehow coming all from the same IP address and Maduro's building or something... Like, they let corporations and other people do that shit all the time. Like, Share Blue has mm-hmm. bots boosting every post. They have, like, these little software front ends for Twitter that let them post under, like, 100 different Twitter accounts with one tweet. Why isn't that shit banned? Yeah, and it's not only that. It's almost just parallel to Hasbro operations now because the mass banning and mass flagging of anything that now Mere Mike posts where now every photo that has nothing to do with Venezuela, but because he's been mass flagged by the Venezuelan opposition Mm -hmm. trolls, all of his shit is now sensitive content. I mean, that makes sense. And I mean, it's no, it's, this is a redo of what it was like back during the Cuban Missile Crisis or when we were trying to overthrow Castro. We would trot out anti-Castro Cubans constantly in our media. And that was the only, it was like literally the only Cuban voices we heard. You know, I mean, that's right. it's, it's, a, it's a fucking, it's the same thing. And and even, I mean, Robert Kagan working under Elliot Abrams for the State <laughs> Department under Reagan devised 
complicated strategies to demonize the Sandinistas from within inside the United States using Hispanic churches. Right. To like convince pastors and priests and leaders of all these Hispanic churches all across the country to put out anti-Sandinista propaganda and lie and say that Sandinistas were so anti-Christian they were like rounding up Christians and murdering them because they were like communists. Mm-hmm. So this is just shit that's just same playbook. I mean, literally the same guy too. Right, right. Like, that's why it's so it, it, it's So th- it's just this idea of this is humanitarian aid and they're blockading it. Now we got to like do something. But I mean, it's the same... Elliot Abrams was caught sending weapons in as humanitarian aid. Like, this is the same shit. It's just yeah, insane. Yeah, and then you have Pompeo all over the media saying the craziest shit I've ever heard. Um, he's talking about how Hezbollah cells are in Venezuela. And then you had Bolton give this erratic interview talking about how Russians and Cuban agents are shooting protesters dead in the streets. Yeah. And he threatens to send Maduro to Guantanamo Bay. Just as a side note, he threatens to send him to a goddamn torture house to be tortured. Mm -hmm. But just casually sprinkles in how Russians and Cubans are executing protesters in the street in cold blood. And oh, oh, and by the way, Hezbollah is there too. Of course, just like they were, just like ISIS was in the convoy. It's like they have to spike it. I mean, this is even dumber than George W. Bush level propaganda. It's on a more operating at a more reptilian brain level. And you know they've already. But how come done people such a don't good... laugh at them? What people aren't? They don't. They're not laughed out of the room when he says Hezbollah is confirmed to be in Venezuela. No. The reporter who was talking to him, the sub Fox Newswoman, just said like confirmed Hezbollah oh, yeah, 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 in yeah, Venezuela. Yeah. It's like that's confirmed no, no. because Mike Abby, Pompeo she wasn't Fox said News, that? She was CNN. Yeah. So this is just so bizarre. It's like CNN twenty four seven anti Trump. Trump is a Russian asset. And then when they bring on John Bolton, he's just like, yeah, Hezbollah's in Venezuela. And the reporter's like, oh, wow, really? Okay, well, that's confirmed. Tweet it out. <laughs> it's just like, what the fuck is happening? Super dangerous that we don't even have a mainstream media network, as shitty as the mainstream media is, with one person on it pushing back on this right now. Which brings me to Tucker Carlson as being hailed still by people who present themselves as anti-war, like Ro Khanna. I believe he's a sitting congressman. Ro Khanna just promoted a Tucker Carlson article saying we need a left-right alliance on anti-war. Like Tucker Carlson writes this scathing critique on Wait. the neocons. Wait, you're joking. No, I'm not joking, Abby. To think that this is anti-neocon ally you want to promote. Um, so let me just go over really quickly Tucker Carlson's history on Venezuela. You know, he's been hoisted up as being this neocon slayer because he made Max Boot... And a, a couple other neocons who came on his show look really foolish and bad. He, he really slammed them on his show, mostly over their desire to wage war with Russia and Syria. And so he's gone hard on some of these never-Trumper neocons. But what's interesting is, like I've been saying for the past couple of years, there are, there are pro-Trump neocons who split off from PNAC who actually Tucker Carlson this whole time has been having some of him on, on his show, like William Bennett, and, and just acting like they're the coolest people on earth. They're, they're not a problem because they're pro-Trump neocons. So what's interesting is when Tucker would argue with people like neocons about Syria, like why are we overthrowing Assad? How's that going to protect America? He would actually say, why don't we overthrow Maduro? So I always found that 
odd that all these people were praising Tucker Carlson, like Greenwald and these other people on the left would praise him when he would say things like that. Maybe because they didn't think that it was even a possibility that we would do regime change in Venezuela. Maybe they were able to write it off as just Tucker Carlson making a rhetorical point, possibly. But what's interesting, Abby, is he has actually been running cover for and laying the groundwork for a coup in Venezuela for the last two or three months. Right. He brought on an opposition leader two months ago, dropping a lot of suspiciously similar talking points to what John Bolton is saying now. So the opposition leader that Tucker Carlson had on his show two months before the public coup attempt by the Trump administration was Julio Borges. Yeah, no toilet paper, eating zoo animals, not going well. We recently spoke to Venezuelan opposition leader Julio Borges, who fled the country to escape being killed by the government of Nicolas Maduro. He had this opposition leader on to talk about the ills of socialism. And what's interesting, if you listen to this clip, the guy kind of oversteps and sort of accidentally reveals that it is sort of a trickle-down economic thing that is mostly about anger towards not letting corporations operate into the country. Here's part of our conversation. When you hear young Democrats identify themselves as socialists, mm -hmm. what's your response? Well, I'm shocked, you know, because I, I can talk by my experience in Venezuela. Uh, socialism in Venezuela has meant uh, expropriating thousands of uh, companies and uh, losing millions of jobs in the name of the poor people. Now, later... It was determined by the Venezuelan government, by Maduro's government, that this opposition leader was part of a assassination attempt on Maduro's life using explosives along with the CIA. So it's interesting Tucker Carlson would have this guy on his show leading into the coup. And sorry if this is redundant, but what's interesting is on February 7th, 2017, Rand Paul and Tucker Carlson sat down together and had about a minute-long discussion about how bringing Elliot Abrams into the Trump administration was a terrible idea. Really quick, we're almost out of time. Elliot Abrams, who served in the last Bush administration, is under consideration to become Deputy Secretary of State. You wrote this. Crack the door to admit Elliot Abrams and the neocons will become scurrying in by the hundreds. Regime change, Iraq war. Elliot Abrams was one of the key architects of the Iraq war. Yes. Donald Trump does represent something new and different in foreign policy, sure. and I think a, a welcome relief from the neocons. So I hope he doesn't appoint somebody who doesn't really agree with him. I'm baffled by it, i got to be honest. Senator Paul, thanks a lot for Thank joining you. us. Appreciate it. When Elliot Abrams actually did get in, in late December, in the Trump administration, in late December 2018, Tucker Carlson didn't say anything about it. He never did another segment about that. Um, he never brought it up again. It just sort of happened quietly, and Tucker just passively, at least, seemed okay with it. The only time Elliot Abrams' name came up after his appointment on Tucker Carlson's program was in defense of Elliot Abrams against Ilhan Omar in that confrontation. Tucker also brushes aside Iran Contra, and he's like, that happened 30 years ago. Today on Capitol Hill, she berated the new envoy to Venezuela, Elliot Abrams, accusing him of being a liar and attacking him over the Iran-Contra affair that took place more than 30 years ago. Here's part of it. Do you think that massacre was a fabulous achievement 
that happened under our watch? That is a ridiculous question, and I yes or no? No. I I will I will take that as a yes. Congresswoman Omar is herself, of course, a refugee to this country. She was born in Mogadishu. She spent most of her time, at least her political life, attacking this country as immoral. So that was his only mention of Elliot Abrams, uh, PNAC neocon, since getting into the Trump administration. But on the two-year anniversary of that segment Tucker Carlson had with Rand Paul, talking about how Elliot Abrams was a dangerous neocon, Tucker Carlson does an intro and then a toss to a Fox News package that is complete State Department military-industrial complex propaganda about Venezuela. Diplomatic relations between the United States and Venezuela are continuing to deteriorate tonight. The U.S. no longer recognizes Nicolas Maduro as president of that country. In response to that, Venezuela has ordered American diplomats to leave Venezuela. The U.S. has not complied. The Trump administration now says, quote, all options are on the table regarding Venezuela. Could this lead to a military conflict of some kind with that country? Fox News Chief Intelligence Correspondent Catherine Harridge has been following the situation in Venezuela very closely, and she joins us tonight with a report. Catherine? Thank you, Tucker, and good evening. Venezuela is much more than a regional conflict, with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo confirming that Iran has a significant footprint in Venezuela and other Latin American nations through the terrorist group Hezbollah. And now Russia, China, and Cuba are backing the Maduro regime. In his most recent interview, President Trump left the military option open, but significantly made no commitments, Tucker. Catherine Harris, a story we will continue to follow. Thank you very much for that. Tucker's intro t- to it is very strange because it's clear that it's a regime change operation of some kind. And Tucker's just there introing this Fox News segment, not pushing back on it at all. I feel like this is really important because when you want to ally with someone who's supposedly anti-neocon and anti-war and anti-the-military-industrial complex, you have to wonder why are they pushing along and allowing something like this to float on their program and also basically running interference for Trump and his Venezuelan coup attempts. Last year, Tucker Carlson was having a Clinton official on with him to have a debate about the merits of uh, overthrowing Assad in Syria. The world in our hemisphere, our neighbors, contiguous countries are collapsing, and we're ignoring that for the sake of some weird war in Syria 6,000 miles from here. Does this seem a little off to you? Well, as I said to you before, because we can't deal with every incidence of war criminalization doesn't mean we have to back away but from dealing with this? Syria. Why wouldn't we deal with Maduro in Venezuela first? Well, people, I mean, Maduro destroyed a first world country, almost first world country. Tucker Carlson said on April 17th, 2018 on his program, and this is not the first time he said something like this. So this is not an anti-regime change argument. This is, even if he's using it as a rhetorical point, which actually I don't think he is now at this point, because he is actually running interference for Trump, Bolton, Pompeo, Elliot Abrams coup attempts in Venezuela. And I would be willing to bet that Tucker Carlson has agreed on some level privately, either through private phone calls, dinner dates, whatever the fuck, with Trump to run cover for Trump's neocon regime change policy in Venezuela, while at the same time still presenting himself as an anti-neocon. Because that's a really actually smart, effective strategy. It's a neat trick 
to get all these people to let their guards down and think you're this anti-neocon crusader when in reality you've been secretly injecting them with pro-regime change of Venezuelan coup propaganda. Yeah, but Ro Khan, is, same- isn't he smart enough to realize that? He was just speaking out against the Venezuela coup. I saw him on Democracy Now! Yeah, it's really fucking sad, Abby, because I think these people want access to Tucker Carlson's three million viewers. Um, but what's really sad is that none of them will Why? Even... Why do you want access to his viewers? Why? Because well, Grand Greenwald's argument is, man, am I, am I going to turn on an opportunity to push back on like establishment orthodoxy to 3 million viewers? You know, he's basically said that. I can understand the argument that you're not going to argue with Tucker Carlson on his show. Like if you want the access, you've already made a deal with the devil. Okay, I understand that. But why not like use Twitter and other social media to call him out when he... When he pushes neocon regime change. Well, you just answered your own question. Because they are afraid they won't get access after they do that. Of course, Robbie. I mean, it's fucking pathetic. And <laughs> so what happened recently? I, I want to well, know. I think, Robbie, I think you answered your own question in, in previous episodes is that these people hate the left and they hate socialism the most. Yeah. And that, that supersedes anything with... Any anti-war stuff, any sort of faux alliance, that's the ultimate goal is to crush the left. Well, it's almost like it's, and I don't even know if these people are looking at it this way. Like, I would like to think they're looking at it like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But I actually think they believe Tucker Carlson is like a good guy who's like mostly good. That's what's so disturbing about it. I mean, Tucker Carlson is a racist, a racist. and a white supremacist. It's obvious. He's racist. But on top of that... There is a body of evidence now that I have found that he has actually decided to help Trump's regime change coup in Venezuela, possibly in private, and decided to agree with Trump to help him do this. It is very odd that he would act like he has this much animosity towards neocons and then just not say anything about Elliot Abrams getting in and then defend him. That is odd. That is odd. Well, we know Trump watches Fox News religiously. And we already know and that Trump and Tucker talk, talk on the phone as well. Yeah. Like they do. That's yeah. been that's been known for a while. Um, yeah. No, it's so obvious. Rand had these private meetings with Trump and he yeah. decided Trump is anti-war now. He's also not mentioning Elliot Abrams, even though two years ago he said Elliot Abrams was a dangerous neocon, one of the worst. Yeah, but these people, it's like so obvious. They're phony. Well, of course it's phony. And what's interesting is Ro Khanna, uh, just promoted this article from Tucker Carlson, and it's actually just a segment taken from Tucker Carlson's book from like, that got released a few months ago on the American Conservative website, and it's b- about Max Boot and Bill Crystal and how the Weekly Standard put all out all this dangerous neocon propaganda, which is so bizarre because the entire article makes no mention of the fact that Tucker Carlson was an employee of Bill Crystal's at the Weekly Standard. I just find that extremely bizarre. But I even find it even crazier when Trucker Carlson, you know, talks about the deep, deep state. Um, because one of the interesting things I found in his early Weekly Standard writings, he, he seemed like he really wanted to ruin Gary Webb um, during the time when Gary Webb's CIA, you know, drug trafficking stuff came out. Which is also interesting because guess who gets, gets in that orbit too? Elliot Abrams was very involved in the Iran-Contra affair, which involved drug trafficking. Elliot Abrams worked at the Weekly Standard at the same time Tucker did. So you want to talk about the deep fucking state, dude? 
what are we talking about here? Tucker Carlson writes articles smearing Gary Webb, the guy who exposed CIA drug trafficking during Iran-Contra, and you're working with Elliot Abrams, and you're writing these articles. Are you, are you sure you're not working for the deep state to smear someone who exposed the deep state? I just find that incredibly bizarre that people can take this motherfucker at face value. Right, but it's all kind of the same types of people. I think the most surprising person that you mentioned is Ro Khanna. Yeah. Um, that is surprising, but everyone else is not surprising. The last thing I wanted to say about the coup, you know, as you're mentioning Elliot Abrams being responsible and found guilty, actually, for smuggling weapons to the Contras back during the Iran-Contra thing, um, and he's the same guy who's now the, the liaison and the envoy for the Venezuela regime change thing. So meanwhile, while this aid... This faux aid thing is happening. Venezuelan authorities found assault weapons, ammunition, and military equipment on a U.S. plane that had taken 40 flights between Miami and Venezuela and Colombia in just the last month alone. So 40 times this plane and, and God knows how many weapons it was shipping those other 39 flights before they actually found it stockpiled with weapons. And this is a U.S. plane. So, of course, the Venezuelan government is saying that this was destined to finance the right, the fascist right, that it obviously came from the U.S. government. That, that hasn't been confirmed, but that is what's happening. So behind the scenes, weapons are being shipped already. And then you have, um, you know, the blockade of Venezuela alone, the SICO sanctions, all of the sanctions that were implemented after Guaido are going to kill hundreds, if not thousands of people. Now there is going to be a humanitarian crisis in Venezuela because of the sanctions. These are genocidal. And the sanctions before, you know, I, I always talk about how Obama implemented sanctions starting in 2015. There already was an economic blockade aside from the sanctions that Obama employed in 2013 that I didn't even know about until I read this report from CELA, Geopolitica. It's a think tank um, that did this whole report basically saying the crisis was caused by the U.S. embargo. And it talks about how way before Trump's latest sanctions, uh, the economic blockade of Venezuela already cost them $113 billion just in like four years. Think about the hit that that takes um, in being able to recover economically aside from the oil plummeting. So this really did asphyxiate their economy, prevent the recovery, and then of course laying the propaganda framework for a military intervention because it caused a humanitarian crisis, or it's causing one right now. And meanwhile, while we're hearing this fake mantra about how Maduro shut down all free press, meanwhile, Telesur, Sputnik, outlets like that are actually getting banned. They were trying to report on the OAS, and Juan Guaido's like, appointed ambassador for the OAS blocked them from going. And then you have Venezuela Analysis, a very small independent grassroots news site based in Caracas. Juan Guaido's OAS ambassador sent them a threatening letter saying you need to, Juan Guaido's a legitimate president and you guys need to start like adhering to this language. And I think that's really fascinating that with all the press backing, all of the Western media's backing, you still need to threaten like a tiny website called Venezuela Analysis. And what does that show you? And we know that from previous coup plots and attempts to overthrow Maduro and Hugo Chavez before included firebombing the Telesur headquarters. We know um, that that is part and parcel with the government. I mean, they consider Telesur an arm of the government. And so they, they consider it an enemy agency. 
And that's why when they found out I was reporting for Telstar, that's why, you know, we, we were threatened to be lynched and assassinated and our colleague from Telstar was shot. So anyone that's remotely not on board with the opposition ploy and this regime change plot, then you are targeted. And so my colleagues at Telstar are brave as hell. Um, they are faring, they're, they're still there doing their jobs, but um, we're already seeing how this is going to play out in terms of the, like, the official recognition of what's a legitimate, quote, legitimate news organization now. Well, kudos to all of these people who are, again, confronting Elliot Abrams, disrupting this process, standing in solidarity with the Venezuelan people and their sovereignty, and respecting their government, their democracy. And that's really uh, what we need to do. So I encourage everyone to get involved, join up with a group. And there's also a huge march in Washington mid-March um, to say no to this coup attempt. So please, if you live in the D.C. area, please make it out and, and link up with these organizations who are doing really good work. But there is a silver lining here, which is that the coup has not gone through. Even yes. with the backing of the most powerful military empire the world has mm -hmm. ever known that's how strong the will is of the Venezuelan people. And that's how strong yeah. the Bolivarian movement is. And that is absolutely amazing. It is amazing and it's hopeful and it will push the U S and, and you know, these, the military industrial complex into a f state where they will need to provoke something violent in order to push this along. And that's the, that's the danger that we're facing now, just like they've always done throughout history. They will need to provoke some kind of incident. Who knows what they'll try to do? Yeah, because we know that they're not going to back down Absolutely easily. Not. And Maduro keeps trying to sit down with Trump. And he says, why can't we have dialogue? And Trump just said, it's too far along. Yeah. He said, the coup is too far along, Robbie. So. Yeah, and you can't make a threat and not back it up, you know, like Trump said. He, just like he's, Trump said. He's still obsessed with Obama backing down from that red line. I mean, this, is, are, this is the new neocon presidency. And it's astonishing to me on some level that Trump doesn't realize the optics of bringing in Elliot Abrams and trying to do this at the same time he's acting like he's going to end the wars. But, I, but the thing is, it doesn't even matter. You know, it's like he could bring in the most brazenly corrupt war criminal that literally did hide weapons and aid mm -hmm. and people still just go along with this notion that Trump is, it's like, it doesn't even matter what he does. Yeah, it's true. He could hire Dick Cheney. I mean, he, what else could he do? Like Elliot Abrams was really the peak. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it would be like, you know, Victoria Newland or, or, or Dick Cheney getting in there or Rumsfeld or Wolfowitz again. Um, so yeah. That is a really positive sign that the coup has not happened yet. And we just, can hope that this is a huge failure and just the resilience of the Venezuelan people prevent this like they have so many times before. But it is surreal to see this kind of new style regime change policy happening and unfolding over social media. It kind of adds this like yeah. surrealistic really good point. tone to it. I don't even think Obama used social media to... Like he used it very mildly when criticizing... I mean, he did make some threats against other countries on social media. Like, that's definitely true. But he did most of his stuff with speeches, um, traditional, like a traditional president would have. But John Bolton and Pence and Trump and Pompeo, they're all tweeting constantly about this right. coup. Right. Like, in real time. Like tweeting it's very, to it's military very members? Yeah, like tweeting to, like, Maduro's friends in the military? Mm-hmm. Like, what the hell? It's super weird. But thank you for bearing... bearing uh, 
with us this entire podcast. It was a doozy, but there was a lot to get to. And be sure to check out our last couple podcasts. They didn't get the love they deserved because I think we came out all at once. But we are going to pace ourselves better, obviously, moving forward. That was just kind of a, you know, everything kind of piled up at the end of the year last year. So yeah, thank you for listening. Check out um, the Glass Review. We had a really good long podcast with Leslie Lee from the struggle session talking about movies. It was really, really fun, a more lighthearted podcast. Also, Robbie did an interview with um, Whitney Webb from Mint Press News about NewsGuard. And just my brother and I did two podcasts last month that we that were really fun and funny. So check it out. Yeah, we did a whole one about like where the end of the podcast all about the Rand Paul Trump romance and how strange that is. We're not doing this podcast for low bar bullshit anymore. Everybody can be scrutinized. Everybody who does stupid shit should be criticized. I don't care if they're on the left. They're the most anti-imperialist idol on the left. If you say something dumb or if you appease neoconservatives, you will be criticized. It just seems like there's this weird thing where it's like certain people are off limits or right. don't go after him because he's the best anti-war guy on TV. Tucker, look at him. It's like, no, I'll go the fuck after him because something's very fishy about him being boosted to this level as an anti-war guy. And if you have a problem with criticizing Tulsi Gabbard because she's the most anti-war person, fine. But... I mean, where else are you going to get that criticism from, from an anti-war perspective? So that's what we're here trying to do. We're not going to keep the bar low. We're going to keep the bar pretty high. And this right. is not a purity test. It's just actually truly important to do it and to maintain standards and not lower them. Right. You know, and it's fine. Well there's, uh, there's an argument to be made about compromising. That's fine. But don't in your soul compromise. No, you know, keep that knowledge that, yeah, she Tulsi Gabbard said some problematic things about Muslims, but I'm still going to support her because right, she's saying more anti-war things than not. That's fine. That's the thing. We need to be honest. Exactly. Exactly. Let's just be honest with ourselves and with each other because it's refreshing and there are no sacred cows and I want to be corrected if I'm wrong about something. So why would I not hold that same standard to people who are actually elected politicians or like famous media personalities that have three million people watching them on Fox News. Like, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. So, thank you for listening. Please donate to us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Check it out. Yeah, please check it out. And also, please consider supporting Phil Westron's family and his daughter by purchasing something off of his Bandcamp page or all the money is being donated to his family at this point. R.A.P. Phil. I'm going to uh, do that right now, actually. I'm going to go buy some stuff off Bandcamp from him. All right. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Peace out. Take care.